Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. Hey, uh, last Sunday we were in Matthew 11. Uh, this Sunday we're in chapter 12. Uh, from chapters 5 through 10, really the first uh, four verses are kind of getting a stage set, Christ born, the baptism with John and so forth. And then in chapters 5 through 10, uh, Matthew is really beginning to give us this whole series of rapid fire information about Jesus, about his preaching, about his teaching, about his healing, about his sending. And uh, they are all so inside out and upside down from what people are expecting and from what people are expecting for the Messiah to be bringing. And uh, the responses, we are coming into chapters 11 and 12, they really carry into chapter 13 as well, next, or in two Sundays here. But uh, uh, chapters 11 and 12 contain these responses. And basically what's going on here, and we'll particularly see it today, is uh, people are irked. Uh, um, they, and that varies in what I'm talking about. At the beginning of chapter 11, we find that John, John the Baptist, is kind of irked. In other words, he's unsettled. He's in prison. It's been some time since uh, the baptism with Christ. And uh, I mean, prison is a place where you kind of start wondering what in the world's going on with your life. And is it, for him, I would think, is it really worth it? And, and it tells us in the text that he's hearing and seeing what, he's hearing about what Jesus is doing and he's questioning uh, what's going on. And so I would say even John's soul is kind of struggling at unrest over who Jesus is. And so he asks a question. We talked last Sunday. Questions are good to ask. The right questions are great to ask. Ask questions. If you have questions, ask. Uh, there's nothing to hide. There's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing. Questions are good things to do from a learner's heart. Uh, questions are good, and here John's soul is unrest, and so he goes, he asks Jesus, and Jesus doesn't respond with a yes or no. Jesus actually responds by kind of telling John, John, be a thinker, take a look. Uh, the, the, the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, and, and take a look at it. I love that. Jesus wants us to be thinking people. We'll see more of that in chapter 12 today. Also in chapter 11, we saw that uh, he's teaching in the, or the areas that he's taught and done healing in, there's like little response to the gospel. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't you think that, you know, it's like us. If Jesus could just be here now and like do all the stuff he did, we certainly would respond to that. And yet in a day, the fact is where he's doing most of his ministry and most of his miraculous uh, work, actually people are not responding. Uh, they're odd. They're astonished, but they're still, I would say, that, let's, on the good side, they're still processing it through. But Jesus is kind of saying, pushing into them, listen, you're not really hearing and seeing what's going on. You're just being awed, but you're not really coming to me in that. And then uh, we're told in chapter 11, as he finishes out the end of chapter 11, uh, Jesus thanks the Father for the Father's sovereign hiding and revealing work and also confirms his own sovereign choosing work. By the way, which we are, if we are all honest, as I mentioned last Sunday, kind of irks all of us a bit. 
Because how do we understand this, this choosing, selecting work of God, and yet in it, he also calls us to make decisions for him as well. And so kind of everybody is irked by the end of chapter 11, including you and me. And I think that's what Matthew wants to have happen. And he finishes chapter 11 with these three verses that are so wonderful, where irked people, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden and at unrest, come, I will give you rest. I will give you rest for your soul. Wow, what a wonderful statement. Well, let's work our way through chapter 12. Today, I want to have you be asking, kind of thinking through two questions as we go through here. They're on your sermon notes page there at the bottom. The two questions are essentially this. What are we hearing and seeing about the nature of people? The nature of people. And what are we hearing and seeing about the nature of the gospel? Uh, the gospel, by the way, is Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ is the good news. And uh, so in it, uh, what are we seeing here? Be thinking about that. We'll, we'll come back to that at the end. Let's just work through the chapter. Uh, here we go. God, I just pray that your word would uh, show itself to us right now. Amen? So let's begin. Verse 1. At that time, uh, Jesus went through the grain fields on the what day? Okay, one of the things that ends up happening is the chapter breaks, you've heard me talk about this a number of times, the chapter breaks and the heading insertions, they're there to help us kind of get our way around the Bible so we can go, we're in chapter 11, uh, or we're in chapter 12, and we can all get there, as opposed to going, you know, we're about a third of the way through the book of John, or we're in the book of Matthew, aren't we? In the book of Matthew, uh, let's go there. Uh, they're, they're helpful, but one of the downsides is that they break up thought. Think about this. The very last thought that Jesus is talking about is this thought of, and I will give you what? For your souls. What's the Sabbath day about? The Sabbath day is about this idea of rest, and it's rest for your souls in it. And so here I think it's not just a break, it's actually a continuation. Matthew uh, is just, this, you know, the Spirit of God is driving Matthew to write, it's just so cool how God's Word is connected together. He's moving thought. Jesus has just said, I will give you rest for your souls, so now he brings up a subject that has to do with the Sabbath day. Still the idea of rest. So at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath day. His disciples were hungry. Uh, by the way, chapter 10, uh, Pastor Erica took us through that, and one of the things we learned out of that was the disciples are time going to experience hunger in just ministering the gospel, and bam, here they are, hungry. Um, hungry, and you don't want to get hangry, but they're hungry. And so they began to pluck the heads of grain and to eat. Uh, understand, plucking the heads of grain in a field, uh, it's just like, say, if it's wheat or whatever it is, you're grabbing, you grab the head, uh, you, you, you take that, you rub it in your hand, you blow it, and the seeds remain there, and all the chaff is gone, and then you can just pop it out. I mean, it's like a granola bar at your dispersal. And, and so here they are doing this, and so it's like, what's the big deal about that, right? Well, our boys, the Pharisees, got a deal. Verse 2, but when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Actually, I would argue that that is not a correct statement at all. That is not a biblical statement at all. 
idea here is what they were doing by the time it had gotten to this period of time, what God had said in the, in the Old Testament about observing of the Sabbath was they don't want you working on that day, they don't want you reaping, they don't want you doing the various processes, and yet, so what was going on by the time it got to Jesus' day, uh, what people normally do is we legalistize everything, new word, okay, and so what's going is, so by the time that you grab the grain, do all this, that's equivalent to the work of reaping the harvest, processing the harvest, preparing the harvest, and then putting it out to eat. Like, everybody should be going, say what? You have gone from a concept of, listen, don't go out and work and rest for the day, catch up, allow your soul to catch up with your activities, I read here in my sabbatical from someone, and then allow that to take place. See, just glory in what God is doing. Sit back, rest, observe, get life back after you've poured out over the week. And But then it's like, you can't do that. Listen, these boys have gotten it so off kilter on what walking with the Lord is all about. So their statement of, wait, they are, they are doing what is not lawful in the Sabbath, I take this moment to push back and go, that is not true. You are doing what is unlawful in our eyes. That's what's really going on here. Verse three, Jesus said to them, have you not read, <laughs> by the way, that is a kind smack talk. <laughs> yes, they have read, but are you not thinking? Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath, and are guiltless, I tell you, note, not I suggest, not if it's my opinion, but I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. He's trying to help them, folks. He's trying to help them understand, and I love that. He's getting them to think, verse seven, and if you had known what this means, that I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Verse eight, for the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I don't know if we really understand what that statement is doing. I mean, this is a blow your mind statement. What Jesus is saying in this statement is actually he is saying that he is the one who is over the Sabbath. He makes the guidelines he sets the standards. Listen, who is over the Sabbath? Uh, uh, God is. This is a divinity statement right here. And no wonder they get ticked off with who he is. Because they know exactly what he's, being, what's he's saying here. They, they know that Jesus is making a declaration kind of in a subtle fashion here. As time goes on in the book of Matthew, it becomes more and more out front and bold. For the Son of Man, that's a title, that's, that, that, that's uh, Jesus as the representative of man, Daniel, Daniel 7, 1, and an equivalent representative of man, thank the Lord, in our place. He is the one who is the Lord of the Sabbath. Woo, these boys are mad. Verse nine. 
he went on from there and entered their synagogue. By whose synagogue? Their synagogue. Words matter. Even descriptive words matter. It's not just any old synagogue, but their synagogue. And I think in the text of the movement and the grammar, it's referring to the Pharisees' synagogue. Now, the synagogue was not the temple. The synagogue was in the various areas. Uh, there were multiples of them all around Israel. And the synagogue was the place where community life happened. That was the place where thought was done, as well as religious activities together. And so Jesus goes to their synagogue, verse 10, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. Jesus said to them, which one of you has a sheep? Which one of you who has a sheep? By the way, in the original language, the grammar of that, I think actually carries this idea of if you have one sheep, okay, I think it's even a bigger point than what we, we read it here in English, if you will. We kind of read it like, if you have one of many, 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 I think Jesus is actually kind of giving this idea of, if you have one sheep, like that's your whole flock, okay? It's even more important. If you have, imagine you have only one sheep. If it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will you not take a hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man as a human than a sheep? By the way, you could have a conversation about that at lunch today, and a lot of times animals are viewed as higher than humanity. So it is lawful. Um, so it is lawful. Jesus is now making a declaration point here. He just said he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's now speaking as though he is Lord of the Sabbath. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out. I mean, just figure, I think he's not saying he went like this. I think it's actually referring to this idea that he began stretching out his withered up hand. Probably his hand is, is something like this. And so in it, Jesus has him, and he begins stretching out his withered hand. I mean, can you not see that? How this deformed, how this uh, handicapped hand is all of a sudden, now right before your very eyes, and this guy's like watching it? How phenomenal is that? And how cool is that, by the way? I mean, just anatomically, all of you nurses and doctors are just like, how could that happen? And this is happening right before their eyes. Stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. I mean, can you just see him going, whoa! But the Pharisees, there's always a ruiner of a party. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Seriously, friends, you read that and you just go, how, how, how hard-hearted do you have to be to do that? How much despisement do you have to have for someone to not even just rejoice for a moment that this poor guy has his hand back. They don't care. That's the reality. They don't care about people. 
they are so bound up in their rules and their guidelines and their structure for what they think it looks like to follow God than what it actually is to follow God. And God has done a work on this Sabbath day and they can't even rejoice in that. And they are just so blatant in their irkness in missing Christ. But I will say this, as we go through the text and continue on going through the book of Matthew, one of the things that comes out is as bold and as blatant as they are here, there's another problem that's the same problem, and might I say it's the sedate missing of Jesus. Because Jesus was just talking about where he was in places with all the healings and the teachings taking places, and no one was getting it. No one was repenting from that. And yet here we have those that are bold, and there is a way that we can get hyper self-righteous by thinking the blatant ones are the ones that are truly messed up because they're really missing Jesus. And the truth of the matter is, is not only are the blatant ones missing Jesus, but so are the sedate ones who are seeing it and are even being awed by it. They're missing him as well. Verse 15. So Jesus, aware of this, he withdraws from there. It's really interesting. Uh, we see this a number of times. We saw it in chapter 4, verse 12. We're going to see it in chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, that when Jesus experiences some of this direct, heavy opposition, that he withdraws out to these places. I did my whole doctoral uh, discussion on the whole thing of men have a tendency to withdraw, but this isn't that kind of withdrawing. This is the kind of withdrawing to where he pulls away. He just needs to get some time. He's actually allowing things to take place for a while. Uh, he withdrew from there, and he's trying to withdraw, but the text tells us, and many followed him. So maybe not much withdrawing, really. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Uh, listen to this as we read it. Behold, my servant, by the way, notice the feel of all this. My servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed, he will not break. And a smoldering wick, he will not quench. Until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Let me just give you a couple quotes summarizing this. D.A. Carson notes this. You can see on the screen. Uh, the picture is not one of utter silence, but of gentleness and humility. A quiet withdrawal and presentation of his messiahship that is neither arrogant nor brash. What is pictured is a ministry so gentle and compassionate that the weak are not trampled on and crushed till justice. The full righteousness of God triumphs. And for such a messiah, most Jews were little prepared. Small wonder that the Gentiles put their hope in his name. Morris adds about this Isaiah Quote, Matthew quotes from Isaiah 42, a passage that shows that God's servant does not bluster, but quietly proceeds on his chosen path, whatever the cost, until the eventual divine victory. The Lord's work will be done without noise and publicity, and it will be done in gentleness. By the way, I might even just note that... Uh, I think there's a truth and a word about that for us today as well in the doing of ministry. 
It's not that we don't be bold with the gospel. It's not that we don't hold it high. But there is a point in time where sometimes, sometimes the gospel is presented from like angry people. And here Jesus is communicating the gospel in such a way that is a loving presentation to come alongside, not all blustery and loud, but loving. More of that's needed. The nature of the gospel. Verse 22. Then, likely sometime later, by the way. Remember, Matthew is not chronological. It's not his point. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were what? Amazed, stunned, astonished, and said, can this be the son of David? Here we are one time again, the right question. It's the right question to be asking. Um, However, Again, sorry about this, but again, in the original language, there's kind of this feel that I'm not sure it's as I'm truly intrigued with the question. There's a sense in the original language where it kind of carries out this idea of this couldn't be the son of David, could it? In other words, they are asking the question. I do think that they are interested, but it's also kind of coming from a presupposition, a, a place originally where it's like this couldn't be. And part of why that's important is for us one more time to understand what is going on here. What everybody thought the Messiah would look like when the Messiah came, Jesus isn't that. They thought it would be bold, that it would be powerful, that it would be governmental, that it would take over things and begin to rule the world under the theocracy of a God in charge. And yet here, that's not what's happening here. In fact, Jesus just told us, or Matthew told us this Isaiah quote, that he is not blustery, he is gentle. And I think here it's one more clue that they aren't understanding who the Messiah is like. Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, I don't know, maybe this is the son of David. No, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Dudes, you never stop, do you? I mean, they just never stop. Remember verse 14, they're conspiring to destroy him. No listening ear, none at all. Not even to process it. Verse 25, uh, knowing their insertion irked thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will this kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by uh, whom your sons cast them out, (laughs) therefore they will be your judges, verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demon, then the demon demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. By the way, Jesus is answering their question by helping them think. Boys, you just ask, you just kind of have this thing where you don't like me. And in fact, you think uh, I actually uh, have satanic source as the power of what's going on here. Let's think about your statement. Your statement does not make sense at all. 
And I love this fact. Jesus engages with their thinking. He's not being smart, Alec. Maybe a little. But in it, he's moving them to help them. Listen, your thinking is not good thinking. Your argument is not even a good argument. Verse 29, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he is first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. And then Jesus makes this declaration, verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. If you want to write something down in your notes here, in verse 30, it's this, there is no neutrality with Jesus. There is no neutrality with Jesus. Are there times for questions? Absolutely. Are there times for even questioning? Absolutely. Are there times where we misunderstand? Totally. But when it comes to being in relationship with Jesus, there is no neutrality. Personally, I'm really concerned what's happening with the gospel. I'm going to say beyond America. It's actually around the world today. The gospel is being made into this comfort thing. Into whatever you would prefer it to be, you can make it be what it would work for you. Because, hey, if it works for you, good. There's a problem with that. Like a problem with that happens to be this very statement in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. It's this kind of thing to where we just, by nature, we want to make Jesus say what we want Jesus to say. You know, we think we have this thought on something in our present-day culture or present-day world going on, and so we'll go to Scripture and we'll grab the verses on that. And we'll validate what we want it to be. Oh, and by the way, we'll conveniently ignore other passages that talk about the other. And then we don't want to discuss about how it could be something that we can't fully put together. Because it's uncomfortable not being godlike and knowing everything. There is no neutrality with Jesus. And I just want to lovingly say this. If you're in a place to where you kind of are like playing all kinds of lines with who Jesus is and you're creating your own Jesus, you need to know this. Uh, I'm just going to lovingly say it this way. Who are you to do that? You can. But when you really think about it, who am I to propose and concoct who God is. Who am I to do that? Who are you to do that? Like, we have the ability to design God? I mean, just that in itself is, it doesn't make sense. Should God not be able to say who God is? And then we submit to that even if we don't like some of it. I don't know, just a thought. Neutrality with is actually opposition to. Verse 31, therefore I tell you, 
Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven of people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Oh, the unpardonable sin. How many trees have been killed for that discussion? I'm going to give you just two more quotes. I think it's just easier today. Hendrickson says this. The penitent... They substitute, I'm sorry, for penitence, they substitute hardening for confession, plotting. Thus, by means of their own criminal and completely inexcusable callousness, they are dooming themselves. This is what he's talking about. Their sin is unpardonable because they are unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. For a thief, an adulterer, and murderer, there is hope. Thank God. The message of the gospel may cause him or her to cry out, Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. When a man has become hardened so that he has made up his mind not to pay any attention to the promptings of the Spirit, not even to listen to his pleading and warning voice, he has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition. He has sinned the sin unto death. Essentially, that person has put themselves in opposition of the God because think about it, the Spirit of God is the one who draws. The Spirit of God is the one who convicts. The Spirit of God is the one who uses the Word of God to teach us about the Son of God that we may be able to come in relationship with the Godhead. And if the work of the Spirit of God is rejected, there's no hope. But even as we think of Paul, Paul was one who was killing Christians. And yet Paul hated the name of Christ And yet Paul later came to know Christ as his Savior. That's why it's talking about in the text that that you can blasphemy against the Son and be forgiven, but not against the Spirit because you are rejecting the work of the Spirit of God to draw you unto. David Platt just simply says it in this in one sentence. Permanent refutation leads to permanent condemnation. The Spirit of God is working on people. Hear them out. So Jesus continues pressing into the thinking of the Pharisees, verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. Okay, now there may be one part where the gentleness gets a little bit heavier. But may I say this? I actually think sometimes there's times here in what Jesus is doing. He is pressing into these boys because they are so hard. He needs to come in, and I would say it this way, love on them more. To help them understand. It's this this idea. You, You children of snakes. It's kind of the statement here. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good of his, I'm sorry, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Hey, have you ever wondered why you say what you say? Have you ever come to a point where you're like, did I just say that? And you think, why did I just say that? And if you answer, I don't know, what I don't know means is you actually haven't sat down and thought about it enough. Because it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. The person who is struggling with anger, the issue isn't learning how to have a a better filter here. 
The issue really is what's going on in your heart that is causing you to lash out. The mouth speaks of the heart. By the way, now is not the good time to edge the person next to you. It's a good time to get the log out of your own eye. Okay? And so when we think about it, if we think about what we say, what's in the heart comes out of the mouth. And there's times, again, where you just go, where did that come from? That's a time, sit down, come before the Lord, and ask this question. What was I wanting so bad that I was willing to sin in my words to get it? Behind that question is your answer. I was wanting peace in the home. I was just wanting them to be quiet. I was just wanting it to be done the way I thought it should be done. Okay, that's what you were wanting, but do we sin to get what we want? That's what Jesus is talking about, and that's what's going on with these boys. He's like, boys, just listen to what you're saying. Verse 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Words matter, friends. Verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, really, they just changed the subject here. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. It's interesting. Uh, we read by that, and I think how we just normally see in this is we want another miracle, but that's actually not what's being talked about. Uh, later here, it, it we'll see the same thing comes out later in Matthew, and there's this idea, we want a sign. This isn't just another miracle, because by the way, remember, they saw this, okay? So they're wanting a sign in this. When we see this in other places of Scripture, it carries more of this idea. We want this grand, something beyond what could be. No more of these like magic tricks, sign healing of people. We want like, like stop the sun. Move the constellations. We want a divine sign. That's what they're asking for, okay? So this is way beyond a miracle. In verse 39, but Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. By the way, friends, scripture is enough. Verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Uh, the men of Nineveh, that's where Jonah went to, even though he didn't want to, and who did repent, and Jonah was bothered that they repented. <laughs> The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and will condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Again, I think he is lovingly trying to help them. Guys, something greater than Jonah is here right now in front of you. Will you just stop in your insanity? And will you just consider for a little bit? Verse 42, the queen of the south, as Queen of Sheba, 1 Kings 10, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Again, he's asking them to think. Verse 43, Jesus continues, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. 
Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. What? Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. <laughs> Sometimes, don't you just hear Jesus talking, and you're like, uh, 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 Come back when we hit uh, chapter uh, 12. It's all about parables and kind of addresses that. But then he says, so also will it be with this evil generation. In other words, the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of demonic powers. And yet Jesus is returning their charge saying they are the ones who are demonizing their generation. And it's gotten worse and worse and worse. Verse 46, let's just finish the text. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak with him. But Jesus replied to the man who, who uh, told who is my mother, I'm sorry, but Jesus replied to the man who, who told who is my mother and brother who are also, uh, and who are my brothers, and stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. Listen, he is not doing any smack talk against his family. Think about it. He's doing this interaction with people. He's trying to help them to think. And then he's all of a sudden told, hey, your mother and your brothers and sisters are out there. They want to talk to you. And it's just like one moment to use a teaching moment. And I think actually to wait, what a way to conclude chapter 12, to conclude it kind of like he did with chapter 11. Hey, by the way, as people hear your mother, brothers, and sisters are outside, I actually don't think they even hear what Jesus says. He says in this, listen, if you know me, you are my mother and brothers and sisters. What a sweet teaching moment in that. After all this confrontation going on, it's kind of like, let's bring this back to a familial thing. Because the end of chapter 11, Jesus is like, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. It concludes chapter 12. If you know me, you are my brother. You are my sister. Well, let's finish with our two questions. What have we been hearing and seeing about the nature of people? Remember, we're at a high altitude, so I'm going to summarize it. The nature of people is that people are irked by the gospel. There's something about the gospel that just in our very core of who we are because we're broken sinners... We just get irked by the gospel. And we've been hearing that account after account, question after question. People are wrestling with it. They're pushing back on it. They're wondering about it. Or they're just outright going to battle with Jesus over who he is. And I would say it in this way, kind of three statements I think are going on. People are thinking, Jesus isn't doing what I think he should do. I mean, I think he should do. Have you ever wondered that, like today? If I were Jesus, I'm just telling you what I would do in the world today. All on board with that? You know, that, that's kind of how we think. I think that. Another is, is Jesus isn't saying what I think he should say. I think Jesus should have said this. I think he should say this. I, this is what I think Jesus should say. And the third one is basically out of that. Jesus isn't fitting what I think he should be. This is what's really going on in this text. 
People even who are amazed and astonished by who Jesus is and what he is doing, still in their minds are going, but, but, but he's not doing what I think he should do. He's not saying what I thought he would be saying. He's not fitting into what I want him to be. What I understood that he should be. And, and that's exactly true. This is all inside out and upside down. And when we get in that world, it's hard for us to grab a hold of that. Why is that? Because by nature, we all want to be kings and queens of our own destinies. And the fact is, is as we go through life, we all have this tendency within us because we're broken sinners, we're selfish at heart, we have this thing within us where we just go through life as our own little kings and queens and everybody in our life are those people that are in our dominion of our kingness and queenness. And they are our subjects. And by the way, that includes God. And God should be what I think he should be, say what I think he should say, and do what I think he should do. And you see what happens? We are making ourselves a king and queen over everything. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. And even in a more subtle way, that's exactly what everybody else was doing when they couldn't wrestle what's going on. Because Jesus wasn't fitting their paradigm. And you and I still struggle with all that today. And Jesus says to people who have souls like that that are at unrest, he says, come to me. The one who does what you don't necessarily think he should do, the one who says what you don't necessarily think he should say, or the one who is what you necessarily don't think he should be, that one says, come to me and learn from me. For I am lowly of heart, and I will give you, kings and queens, rest for your soul. And right, all that tells us about the nature of the gospel. The gospel invites people. He knows our frame. He knows we're at unrest. And he enters our battles. He speaks into our battles. And he offers a personal invitation. Not just to come to know him, but just a personal invitation to be with him. All the time. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, who are heavy at unrest, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Lord, I just want to thank you for who you are. Lord Jesus, the, the reality of what you have said and done and who you are. Father, I pray for anyone in here this morning that whose soul is at a place of unrest. And I'm not even talking about circumstances of life. I'm not even talking about being tired in life. I'm talking particularly about whose soul is at a place of unrest with you. 
They're wrestling through the purpose of life. They're wrestling through who you say you are. And God, I just ask that you would come alongside them and that you would encourage them now and give them hope and help. God, I ask that they would hear the call, hear the invitation to come. You are available. It is in our plate. It is in our side of this relationship to come to. Lord, if anyone has questions about what that means to enter into a relationship with you, I pray they would ask this morning. And God, for those of us who know you as our Savior, this truth never leaves. It is not just an invitation to enter into relationship with you. It is the ongoing reality invitation of doing life with you. Thank you for being so kind and patient and loving and enduring with us. May we rest in you. In your name, amen.